It was around 7 p.m. on a bright May Friday when I found myself in the living room of someone from my church. The penultimate months of my fourth grade experience were beginning to wane, and the school days were starting to feel brisker as the sun lasted longer and longer. However, on this particular Friday, the day seemed like it would never end. I had woken up excitedly that morning and gone to school in a sort of haze. I always got a sort of buzz on Friday, looking forward to the excitement of the end of the week, pizza I would eat, and the films I would watch, but this was completely different. Recess and class inched along, each in their own molasses state, seemingly to intentionally prevent me from reaching my goal of 9pm. By the time I finally found myself in that living room, attending with my parents some sort of graduation or wedding reception, probably cartoonishly tapping my foot, my mood at last began to turn as we were approaching what I had been waiting not just all day for, but all year, and seemingly my entire young life. That night, at long last, at 9pm, I was going to see Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3. The film had actually already been in theaters for about two weeks at that point, but my parents had a rule in place that for me to see a PG-13 film, especially one in theaters, they would need to have seen it prior. Often this rule ended up being a formality, as there were seldom edits made or scenes skipped. Yet, all the same, it was a formality that remained steadfast throughout my first 10 years. The rule became significantly acute in the months leading up to the release date of the long-awaited follow-up to Spider-Man 2, May 4th, 2007, a date imprinted on my heart. Honestly, even today, despite the date being co-opted by people that love a certain space opera that is also dear to me, the first thought my subconscious brings forth when someone mentions May the 4th is to remember it as the day Spider-Man 3 arrived in theaters. However, I did not see Spider-Man 3 that day, but with what I'm sure was a significant amount of plotting on my part, I got my parents to see it relatively soon after its release, and pending some deliberation, they announced that it would indeed be alright for me to see it in a theater. And now it was really going to happen. The schedule had been run by me a million times the day before. After school, my friend would come home with me, at which point we would have a few hours before eating dinner. After that, we would go to the graduation, reception, or whatever it was at the church friend's house, and then after all that, and only after all that, my dad would take my friend and me to see what I was certain would be the best film ever made. While I was a bit nervous, the Green Goblin transformation in Raimi's first film had shaken me pretty severely, and from the marketing I knew James Franco's Harry would be following down that path, I was mostly just excited. After what seemed even longer, 
We finally left that party, and soon I found myself walking into the AMC theater to at long last experience true cinema. With some level of maybe irony, or perhaps just coincidence, or maybe meaning nothing at all, this particular Friday also heralded the release of Shrek the Third. Most of the screens in that megaplex were occupied with the titular ogre's adventures, and I remember feeling a particular pleasure as we walked past the ticket booth and the employee exclaimed, Oh yeah, finally Spider-Man, it's been Shrek all day. A man after my own heart. At least the employees of this establishment have taste, I thought. Soon we were in our seats, anticipation brimming, lights dimming, and when the typical amount of cell phone warning and Coca-Cola advertisements were satisfied, and all the trailers shown, the film began. While the images I saw that day now live in relative infamy, I think the best way to express how in love with them I was is to jump slightly forward in time to an incident at the beginning of the next year when my dad sort of offhandedly mentioned that the Oscars had taken place that night before. He was reading the news from, of all things, the newspaper, and mentioned to my mom that he didn't much follow the Academy Awards anymore. While I'm sure I had some level of cognizance of what the Oscars were before this, I think this is my first memory revolving around them. And after learning that the most coveted award of the ceremony was the best picture, I turned to my dad and with full sincerity of heart and childlike love for the world, declared that as long as Spider-Man 3 won best picture, I'm fine with that. While that statement is a bit laughable now, and was certainly then, my parents replied with remarkable understanding and broke the news to me that typically superhero movies do not win awards, and it had not even been nominated. This concept made absolutely no sense to me, yet I shook it off with relative ease, fine with the fact that I knew cinema better than whoever was judging the Academy Awards. I should add that those particular Oscars were the 2008 awards for films released in 2007, which means that the Best Picture winner that year was No Country for Old Men, which was up against There Will Be Blood and Juno. Just a little fun fact for relativeness. From that late May screening at the end of fourth grade, Spider-Man 3 was my favorite film. It had everything I could ever want. Three villains, a giant Sandman, Harry Osborn as the new goblin riding around on a surfboard, and of course, the alien, Venom. I got a little bored during this weird middle section at a jazz bar, but then Peter frees himself from Venom and I was back in the film. The film was pretty much everything that I had ever wanted. However, the story evolves, both for the film and for me. While I seldom rode the bus home from school, for some reason I was riding it on one particular day, and as I sat next to some other random person, who I hope is well today, he told me about this new website that had just been released. It was this crazy thing where he and his siblings could watch anything they wanted, even full-length films. That sounded particularly strange to me, so I asked him what it was called, and he said, YouTube. He then told me stories about him and his siblings watching all sorts of things, some of which he assured me were among the funniest he'd ever seen. I thought that was great, but it, it was the idea that feature-length films could be found on the internet that intrigued me. I mentioned the site to my parents, but they'd never heard of it, so I moved on. Until a few weeks later, at a third friend's house, the guy on the bus was more of an associate, really, I found myself staring face-to-face -face with something called YouTube. I decided to put it to the test, and after watching whatever early video he wanted to show me, I asked if I could type something in and eagerly wrote the title of my favorite film. This would be a game-changer if I could watch Spider-Man 3 over the internet.
Well, I'm sure I could let you know what happens if you type Spider-Man 3 into YouTube in 2008. I am also confident that most of you probably have a pretty good idea. I found video after video highlighting all of the narrative incongruencies, ridiculous moments, and of course, the absurdity of the dancing sequences. All seeming to join together in a unison that Spider-Man 3, my favorite film, was a huge mistake. And so, as the years went by and as I grew older, I would from time to time revisit that film that I once loved so much. Only now that chorus seemed to me to be correct. There were too many villains. There were too many loose plot threads. And there was certainly too much dancing. And so I agreed, letting Spider-Man 3 be condemned to its place as an eternal meme, doomed to be known only as the film that killed Raimi's franchise, and mostly as a monumental miscalculation. I couldn't have miscalculated. Now, before I go any further, I want to state that my point here is not to make a case for the power of nostalgia. While I think all of us will forever, at least to some small extent, revere the films we loved as children, that does not inherently give them any value at all. There are plenty of films that I loved as a kid that are not any good at all. And while there is some merit in nostalgia, despite what the last few minutes would have you think, that is not what I want to talk about today. Instead, I want to make a case for a film that found itself in the crosshairs of something unprecedented, something we still don't quite understand, and tell you the weird story of how I came back around to love Spider-Man 3 again, not just based on the memories I had for it as a kid, but for what it meant to me today. I'll concede that it's quite possible that I myself am affected beyond my own understanding by my own nostalgia, and maybe that's why I'm going to defend the internet's least favorite film. And I'll also concede that after everything I say today, you still may not be a fan of Tobey Maguire breaking it down. However, like always, I'm going to offer my specific perspective and see if we can look at something together. Allow me to tell one more personal story. In anticipation for the release of the new Spider-Man 3, Tom Holland's MCU extravaganza Spider-Man No Way Home, a film that deserves its own conversation, my brother and I, though with more devout zeal, my brother, engaged in a marathon of Spider-Man viewings, watching through Raimi's films, skimming through the Garfields, and of course watching the Tom Hollands. However, while I happily watched Spider-Man 2 with him, a film that I would still say is the best superhero film ever made, I made no plans to watch its follow-up. I had revisited it in the early throes of COVID quarantine, we're talking about April 2020, and found it better than I'd come to see it, but still not very good, and I was not really interested in watching it again. Yet Nathan decided to watch it on a day when I had nothing going on, so I sat down with him and took a look again. Almost immediately something strange began to happen. Where before I'd seen a jumbled mess of too many plot threads and dreadfully corny line delivery, now seemed to be something of a camp metaphor. It was the same film, the same images that it had always been, the same pictures I loved as a kid, and the same pictures that had been sacrificed at the altar so that YouTube might be. Yet, suddenly, they were actually good? Instead of a misguided comic book superhero film, I realized that I was watching a great tragedy in play. This was not the story of a hero trying to make his life work, as in its predecessor, but a story about a powerful man who thinks he's powerful enough to do anything he wants, so much so that he ruins everything around him. It was almost a Camp Shakespeare. Now, before I proceed with the rest of this, I'm going to imagine that some of you are already thinking, Okay, that's nice, Parker, but I don't think so. To that I'll concede again. You may be right, and as Billy Joel once expressed so succinctly, I may be crazy. I may be crazy. But I'd ask you to allow this lunatic to proceed a little longer down the road, and, pun intended, 
let this web spin further. I can't promise that you'll agree with me, but please stick around anyways. I like having you here. Ultimately, as I alluded to above, Spider-Man 3 is not really a superhero film. Yes, the characters still wear costumes, the story beats are all rendered in a pulp melodramatic fashion, and the sweeping score is never far away. And yet, it's not really a superhero film at all. It's barely even an action film, despite containing some of the best directed and more underrated action set pieces in the genre. No, Spider-Man 3's superhuman aspirations ultimately fall subsidiarily to something entirely different. Where Spider-Man 2 explored the idea of humility, Spider-Man 3 is primarily a story about hubris. It is a story about specifically Peter Parker's hubris and the choices he makes in the aftermath of his previous struggles and powers. It is a tragic story that resolves itself with incredible acts of grace. Spider-Man 2 is the story of heroes. Spider-Man 3 is the story of people. Vengeful, angry, sinful, forgiving people. It is a story in mourning, and it is possibly the most human the character of Spider-Man has ever been, at least on the screen. And so, as I sat on the couch watching this strange, but I'd submit wonderful, film with my brother, I realized that now, a few years into my adulthood, I related to an imperfect Spider-Man in a way I never could as a kid. Suddenly the idea that despite all your best intentions, you will still possibly mess up everything in your entire life felt uncomfortably relevant. This was a Spider-Man I knew. This was a superhero, but more importantly, this was a person. There's a moment almost directly in the middle of the film where I really began to realize that it all actually worked. Peter is laying in his bed, plagued by his own perception of the murder of his uncle, just after discovering Flint Marco, the Sandman, is actually responsible. Up to this point in the film, he's been gradually and slowly hurting everyone around him. He fails to reconcile with Harry and chooses to push it aside when Harry loses his memory. He ignores MJ's problems, instead assuming that he understands everything because of his own time in the public eye, all made worse by his extremely public kiss with Gwen Stacy. And now he has found out that someone else has killed his uncle, someone he met earlier that week. Gradually, Venom rises up onto the bed, and as he lays festering in his own anger, sins and fury, fury he believes to be righteous, it begins to take him over, moving up over his body, molding to his form, and then suddenly, the screen cuts out. And with that cue of the score, he arrives, fully taken over by his own greed. He has become everything he always fought against. But how does he react? What is this? I feel... Wow. This feels good. Now, rather than continue in a scene-by-scene -scene analysis over the rest of the film, I'll instead elect to summarize. As is well known, there are three antagonizing forces in play in Spider-Man 3. Harry Osborn's quote, New Goblin, The Sandman, and fan favorite Venom. One of the main criticisms of this film is that it poorly characterizes each of these figures and fails to give them any time. In many ways, this is completely valid, and as adaptations of comic book characters, these characters really do fall short. Especially Venom, someone that I'm sure some feel has been remedied by Tom Hardy's duo of films. However, this is not their function in Spider-Man 3. Rather than working as comic book villains, each of them instead carefully serve their own narrative purpose, building Peter to the point where he arrives fully donning the black suit, ultimately serving as metaphorical manifestations of Peter's own character.
This all because in reality, none of them are actually the villain of the film, despite each serving as an antagonist. The true villain of the film is Peter himself, his own hubris and belief that he is all-powerful. And so when the Sandman struggles with his family and plagues Peter's perceived memories, it is Peter's drive for revenge and justice, something that he feels he is owed due to the pain he's felt. When Harry attacks him, it is the direct result of the past, the actions that neither Spider-Man or Peter Parker can leave behind. And when Venom overtakes him, it is not as the sentient comic book monster, but a visual metaphorical manifestation of animalistic rage, of hubris and anger, of what Peter has become, the villain. Thus, Spider-Man 3 is not a superhero film, but a tragedy. Yet, it is not fully tragic, as despite the lyrical images of the church sequence, and the moments where he is beaten down by Sandman and Venom, each using their own abilities to kill him, in front of, mind you, those same crowds that ever so loudly expressed their love of the famed hero, the ultimate resolution of the film is notes of grace and forgiveness. Harry, after getting his face blown up by Peter in a rage-filled attack, chooses to forgive, going to save his friend. Peter, finally, after everything he's done in this film, things that are just as much, if not more so, his fault than the black suits, chooses to forgive the Sandman, realizing that he is just as human as the rest of them. I'm not asking you to forgive me. I just want you to understand. This reaches its peak with MJ in the final images, who is admittedly the least drawn character in the whole trilogy, an issue this film in part remedies, allowing her to be more dynamic than she has been before, though not really to the extent that it's all better. There's still a lot of screaming. But those final images are still resonant. Alone, she and Peter dance together, maybe stuck together because of their own failed circumstance, yet maybe also two people who are going to try again. To me, Spider-Man 3 ends on a note of profound human forgiveness and repentance, closing Raimi's trilogy wonderfully. Okay, that's great, I'm sure you're thinking, but you have failed to mention the elephant in the room. And you're right. I did not mention that fateful jaunt down the street, nor that exciting dance piano solo. Nor have I given much credence to Bully Maguire and his beautifully emo locks of hair. Now, I did this on purpose, because while I do think one explanation for those sequences is that Raimi and folks were attempting to express Peter's descent within the confines of a PG-13 superhero film, and therefore chose for a more comically rendered expression of toxicity, rather than what you might see in something more realistic, I am instead going to highlight something else. Instead, I want to make a different plea, something that from those early days at the dawn of YouTube has been slowly corroding the way we approach films, and now even the ways they are made. Criticism is valid, and I want to reiterate again that you don't have to like Spider-Man 3. However, consider this. So much of the meme-dom and comedy relating to Spider-Man 3 are obsessed with the narrative incongruencies at the center of the film, and all those moments I just mentioned above. Video videos highlighting how stupid some of the characters react to things or how dumb it is that jaunting down the street is the darkest thing Peter can think to do. However, I'm going to argue today that these are the exact kind of thing we need in mainstream film today. Sure, maybe not jaunts and jazz always, but we need big movies that are unabashedly eccentric, without quipping about it or being tongue-in-cheek. Movies that are weird and make choices for their characters that maybe do not pay off. Movies that, please, are more concerned with character than plot, but even more movies that are not judged based on the realism in their plot at all. Movies that are sometimes a little emo, sometimes have random dance numbers, and sometimes express something more intense. 
In short, movies that might risk getting a bad Rotten Tomatoes score. And so, it's maybe true. Spider-Man 3 may not be a good movie, nor is it particularly weird, especially compared to films that are screened in the art house cinemas. Maybe the plot is a mess, and maybe the characters are poorly characterized. Maybe its dancing really is deserving of the sentence bestowed upon it. However, I happily admit that I love Spider-Man 3, because in addition to being a weird and eccentric little mess, it is deeply, incongruently, occasionally uncomfortably human, grounded in emotional stakes that feel all the more relevant every year that I grow older. I loved the film when I saw it in the fourth grade for showing me a spectacle I had never seen before, but I love it today for representing feelings that I still try to make sense of every day, and for being an oddball. I love Spider-Man 3 because just like me, it's completely imperfect. And what a wonderful thing. And now, ladies and gentlemen, perhaps the most 2007 thing of all, Snow Patrol. The perfect words never crossed my mind Cause there was nothing in there but you I felt every ounce of me screaming out But the sound was trapped deep in me Yeah. 